Well, a new year is upon us. 2009 lies open before us with all the possibilities uh, that it may hold for us as a church family, all the things that we could be doing together over the next 12 months. What is it that we are about this year? What is it that is our goal, our mission? Where are we heading? I guess it's the sort of question we're more likely to ask individually or perhaps as a family as we sort of use these early days of January to reassess to think about the year past, to think about the year ahead, to make plans, to make resolutions, to make changes. But what about as a church family? Where are we heading for 2009? What are we all about? I guess one of the ways that we could work that out is to uh, grab one of these welcome packs that are at the end of the rows and uh, quite often when we give notices uh, for newcomers, for people who are visiting, uh, to uh, show them what we're about as a church, we say grab one of these and you'll see lots of the things that we do, lots of the things that make up what we're about as a church family. And as you flick through it, you see that we're about a lot of different things. Uh, As we've already done this morning, one of the things we're about is welcoming newcomers, welcoming people into this church family in the hope that they will make this their home, that they will feel at home with us. And as you keep uh, flicking, you'll see that we also love to introduce people to Christianity, to the person of Jesus to see the difference he makes, to see the love he has for them and to see what it would mean to come to him in repentance and faith. That is what we are about as a church. You keep flicking and you see what we are doing right now is one of the key things that we do. We gather together as a church family, we hear God's word, we explore it together, we see the difference it makes to our lives, we pray, we praise God, we share each other's lives. We do that as a big gathering on a Sunday, we do it in small groups, all throughout forward and beyond. And while we meet like this of a Sunday morning or evening, youth are meeting across there in the church centre, students often down at Birkdale School and uh, many different children's groups are meeting. And so as you start to flick through this book, you see that we are about a lot of different things. We're also about engaging uh, with our community, with forward, with Sheffield, playgroups, toddler groups, new mums groups, Friday club, soup wagon not to mention the mission partners not only in Sheffield but all throughout the world. As you start to look through uh, uh, something like this welcome pack and you look about all the things that we are about as a church, at least as I did this week, it's exhausting just to think about it. All these activities, all, all this frenetic activity, all the countless teams, the groups, the meetings, what's all the fuss about? Why all this activity? Why all these plans? And it's not like it's a new endeavour either. It's not like suddenly in 2009 we're saying, this is what we're about. We've been about these things for many years. This is my third year a part of it all, but for many here you will have been part of this for much, much longer. In fact, this uh, church, this parish church, this community meeting on this hill has been here for some 170 years. 1839 is the first time a parish church met here. So much activity, so many people gathering over these years. What's it all about? Well, we're building. That's what we're doing. The first stone was laid in 1837 and it took some two years to finish the completion of this building as it first was. And yet for the 170 years that followed that, the building work has continued. And I put it to you that 2009 will see the building project continue even more. You see, what we are building is massive. 
We're not just building this, this bricks and mortar we are sitting in. We're, we're not building a group. We're not building a meeting. We're not building up to some event. We are building a city on this hill. The city that Jesus spoke of in Matthew chapter 5 when he spoke of what it means to be his people in this world. When he spoke of what we are to be about, he said, you are the light of the world. You are the city on a hill. And so there's Jesus' answer to the question, what 2009 is about for us. We are building a city on this hill. A small city within the massive city that is Sheffield. And as I said, it's not a new project that we start this year, some 170 years, but it has in fact been going on since the basement of time and it will continue to the very last day of this earth, this city. The day when God's city on a hill, his city in heaven, the new Jerusalem as the last chapters of the Bible call it, will come down from heaven and it will be the light of the world, gloriously ablaze with light, we're told. That's the end point, the the glorious end point of this building project we're a part of, the new Jerusalem. And all throughout the Bible's account of this project that we continue this year, it is the name Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, that symbolises this city on a hill that we are building, that our God is building. It is to be a city where God dwells with his people, where he is at the heart of absolutely everything we do, where our God is worshipped, where his people delight in his goodness, where his word is honoured, where his people live together radically different lives, lives that show how good our God is, lives that show how good life in obedience to him really is. That's what 2009 is about for us, building a city on this hill, a city that will see the big city of Sheffield, a city of many hills, transformed one life at a time as this city meets Jesus. And so over the next month or so we are going to give ourselves over to resetting that vision for this year to be crystal clear what we are about in 2009 as a church family. And it is God's word that is going to give us this clarity and what we're going to do is we're going to go back some two and a half thousand years into the building project to see the words of Nehemiah, to see the words he described as a man who had a heart for building this city in his city, Jerusalem. So let's turn to it together, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. Let's meet the man. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year while I was in the citadel of Susa. The words of this book are Nehemiah's account of his efforts in the building project. It's his journal, if you like. A journal, we're told, that begins in the month of Kislev, 20 years into the latest Persian king's reign. The commentators tell us it's winter, it's 445 BC when his journal begins, the cold months of winter. And yet if you look at verse 2, the, the, the chill is offset by the visit from his brother and his friends from Jerusalem, from his home city, which is far from where Nehemiah is at. And Nehemiah is desperate for news of home. You can imagine it, can't you, as they sit around the fire catching up and he's just wanting to know everything about his city. He's especially anxious for news because the recent past has not been good for the city of Jerusalem. His people are in exile. Babylon had come in and it had destroyed Jerusalem. The walls had been utterly destroyed. The people scattered far away. 
Some had survived this scattering process and some were starting to, to move back in, but they were still in exile, back in the land, back in Jerusalem, but still very much broken. Now it's important for us as, as we read these early verses, as we hear this question from Nehemiah, what's life like for the people in my city? We can read that and think, well, that's sort of historically interesting, but I don't see how it's got anything to do with me in Sheffield in 2009. And so it's important for us to make a connection that the Bible makes if we are to see just how important Nehemiah's question is for us. You see, this exile of Jerusalem was a horrific event. They had gone from a place of blessing, a place where God dwelt with them, of good relationships, of life to the full, of total security. They had all of that and it had all gone, destroyed. The exile was horrific. They had turned away from their God, they had turned away from his ways, they had rejected him and on them had come God's judgement, the judgement of exile. But if we see clearly the story the whole Bible tells us, we would recognise this exile from Jerusalem is but an echo of a much bigger exile, our exile from Eden, the exile of the entire human race. Jerusalem echoes the experience of every single man, woman and child on this earth. And this connection is actually made for us all the way through the New Testament. Paul says in Romans 3, it's not just Jerusalem, it's not just Israel that have turned away from God. There is no one who is righteous. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. The situation of Jerusalem under God's judgement is the situation of our world, our city. And so the answer to Nehemiah's question in verse 2 is one we should listen to. Because if we were to ask God after the welfare of our city, this would be his answer. And so Nehemiah asked, what is life like for those who are exiled from God? Answer, do you see it there, verse 3? Those who have survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem are broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. This city, Jerusalem, which was to be this place where God lived with his people, where he was honoured, where his word was obeyed, where blessing was everywhere, all that is broken. It's just a rubble. Nehemiah hears this news and it hits him hard. Do you see it there, verse 4? When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. And he doesn't just weep for a moment, he doesn't just weep for a day, he weeps, we're told in chapter 2, for some three to four months, totally broken by this news. He weeps and mourns and fasts for his city. Now we read this uh, reaction and we think, of course. I mean, this is terrible news. All that beauty, all that hope, that wonderful relationship with God, it's just a rubble, all gone. This is the right time for tears. But let me give you a date that should colour the way you view Nehemiah's reaction. The date I want you to lock into your heads is 586 BC. 586 BC. This news that Nehemiah receives, how new is it? This, this news of the destruction of Jerusalem, how long did it happen before Nehemiah hears of it? This event that leads to such grief, was it yesterday? No, it was 141 years earlier. 141 years. 
Now I read that this week and, uh, and it, was, it got me thinking, what is going on here? Why does Nehemiah react like this? And it would be, be a bit like me standing here and saying to you, I've got terrible news for you all. The first Ashes Cricket Series, Australia versus England, 1882, bad news. You lost very badly. And you hear that news and you're so broken by it that you fall to your knees in tears and you're immovable for three to four months. It seems a little too late and a little over the top, doesn't it, to react like that? I mean, you'd be more likely to say to me, we know, Andrew. Uh, We got over that a while ago. In fact, we've got quite used to losing over the years. (laughs) So why is it that Nehemiah reacts like this about such old news? News I suspect that he would have known. Well, Nehemiah's reaction is actually the only appropriate one. It's the only response in line with God's response to this news. For it's the response of God's own heart to the exile, not just of Jerusalem, but of the whole world. It's the heart we see way back in Genesis 6 when God looks at his world, a world that has turned away from him, a world in exile, and he grieves that he even made it. And no matter how old the news gets, the grief is just as intense for God's heart. As Nehemiah weeps some 141 years after the fact, Jesus will weep 600 years after the fact for Jerusalem. Nehemiah's heart for the city is the heart Jesus has. And given the exile that Nehemiah weeps for is just a part of the much bigger exile we have all experienced from God. The question I've been asking myself all week and the question I think we all need to ask ourselves is why do I not grieve for my world and my city like this? Because my city is in no less trouble and disgrace than Jerusalem. Sheffield is a great city, great in size, in population, in industry, in culture, in beauty. But it's also great in trouble and disgrace and helplessness. Sheffield is a city in exile. We know that. But our tendency is to respond a bit like we would to the news of the ashes. We've got used to it. It's always been this way. You know, in Nehemiah's day, the the broken walls of Jerusalem and the burnt gates, they were just part of the landscape. As is our city's brokenness and insecurity part of our landscape. We just get used to it. And when we do see the brokenness of our city up close, our heart barely skips a beat. I mean, think about where the places you've been in our city over recent weeks. Did they break your heart? As you walked here or drove here this morning, past house after house after house in exile, whole families utterly dislocated from their God, house after house with no security, did you weep? I didn't. I think the closest I got was moaning about how cold it was as I walked up to church. We know the plight of our city, but it just doesn't get through. We hear the effects of things like the credit crunch on our city. We we see shops like MFI and Adam's Kids going bankrupt and we say, that's a shame, I love that shop. But for a city full of spiritually bankrupt people, our heart barely moves. What we need in 2009 is for God to do some heart work on us, to renew our hearts so that like Nehemiah, like Jesus, we would weep for our city. You see, if we are going to be a city on a hill for the great city of Sheffield, step one is a new heart, 
a softened heart, a broken heart for this city. One that is not okay that our city is in exile from its God. One that grieves that this city on a hill is so small. You start to see how vital 1 plus 1 equals 2,000 really is. How desperate the situation is for our city. 2009, we are about building a light on this hill, a city on this hill. And step one is going to be having a heart that would move us to that. But Nehemiah continues after hearing the news, after weeping and mourning, we see what he does next. Verse 4. What do you do when you're heartbroken for your city but you feel powerless to change anything? Well, you do what Nehemiah does. You bring your city before your God. You pray for your city. Nehemiah brings his city to the only place rescue and transformation will ever come from. Verse 5, to the God of heaven, to the God of awesome power and holiness, to the God of covenant love, who loves despite all that's happened. And so in verses 5 to 11 we see his prayer to that city, about that city to his God. And he starts with praise. It's amazing, isn't it? He's just had his heart filled with a tragic picture of his city, a a city of trouble and disgrace. And what does he do next? He fills his heart with his glorious God. Glorious and holy. And seeing how glorious and holy his God is, he does the only logical thing next. In verses 6 and 7, he confesses sin. You see there, I confess the sins we Israelites including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. As I read this confession this week, the thing that strikes me is how completely he binds himself up with his city and his confession. As he mourns and he confesses the sin of the city, there's no, they have done this, my city is terrible. No, it's all we and my and I and myself. He's part of this. The tragedy of the city, the exile of his city is something he is bound up in. I guess we have to ask ourselves, do we pray like this for our city? Knowing that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, not just the inhabitants of our city outside these walls. Knowing there but for the grace of God go I. And so Nehemiah's prayer starts with the knowledge that he and his family and his whole city are sinners. Now I think we need to grasp how important this approach is for our city. This year, God willing, through one plus one, through our endeavours of reaching out with the love and message of the Lord Jesus Christ, many will come to him in repentance and faith. The ultimate apologetic for that sort of call on our city is a community on this hill, a city on this hill that likewise comes before our God in repentance, who knows that this community is not built on our status or our activities but on his grace Grace shown to us, the worst of sinners. Nehemiah's prayer continues and uh, having confessed sins, he now calls on God to remember. If God is going to turn things around for the city, it is because he will remember his promises and it is because he will remember that the welfare of the city is bound up with the honour of his name. And so in verses 8 and 9, Nehemiah basically says to God, he says, God, when people see this city on a hill, They think of your name. The smaller the city on this hill is, the fewer people who are walking in your ways, the less your name is on it. This is the place that you have set for your name to dwell. 
And so we pray that God would make his name great in this city. We call upon God to do that which we know he will, to remember his promises, to bring honour to his name. So as we pray for our city this year, we need to be sure that our prayers are full of God's promises. Because if they're not, when we look at our city, the task ahead of us will look hopeless. Our city is beyond our capacity to rebuild. I mean, even the thought that in 2009 we would go from 1,000 people meeting on this hill to 2,000 is fanciful, isn't it? When you look at our city, our our village, our our streets, our families, our our own capacities, it's just not going to happen. And so it would be easy for us this year to curb our prayers and rather than pray 1 plus 1 equals 2,000, we we might say something more along the lines of 1 plus 1 equals 1,001. That's more in our capacity. But when our prayers are full of God's promises, when we know the promise that his gospel is the power of salvation, that he can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, then we start to up the ante in our prayers, don't we? And let me say at this point that we need to see the massive difference Jesus makes to our prayers. Nehemiah prays with boldness here because he knows the promises of God. He knows God is a God of covenant love. And yet you and I pray to that same God knowing those promises but also knowing their spectacular fulfilment in the Lord Jesus. Knowing not just what is to come but what has come in Jesus. And so when we pray for our broken city, we pray confident in our awesome God, confident in his commitment to making his name great. And so that's what 2009 needs to be about for us. The city we build on this hill is all about making God look great in Sheffield. That's what all the fuss is about. Jesus needs to be seen as great in this city. And do you know why? Because he is great. I guess we get used to sort of marketing campaigns where pretty bland, ordinary things have a sort of spin put on them to try and make them look impressive. You see it at Christmas with all sorts of pretty boring average presents all of a sudden become the must-have item. And we get used to things that are boring and bland being made to look interesting. And we do it ourselves. I've gotten the habit with my daughter, Jamie, who refuses to eat mashed potato, that sometimes when I'm cooking and I forget the fact that Jamie won't eat mashed potato and I bring out the plate with a pile of mashed potato on it and she tells me, once again, Dad, I don't like mashed potato. I say, ah, that's all right because this isn't mashed potato. This is Dad's special mashed potato. And just putting the word special in front of it is enough to confuse her long enough to take a few mouthfuls before she realises, no, this is just normal mashed potato. And I guess that's our fear a bit with the gospel, that, that it's just plain. But the wonder of the gospel of the Lord Jesus is that no spin is required. Jesus is great in power, in glory, in mercy, in love, in wonder, in forgiveness, in hope. And his name is great. For there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. And so as we look ahead to 2009 and what we are about, it is not about making the name of Christchurch forward great. Who cares about that? It's not about making Sheffield's name great. It's not about your name or my name. It's about his. All other names must decrease. His must increase. Nehemiah finishes his prayer with a plea that this building project that he wants to start might succeed. You see it there, verse 11? 
O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. It's a bold plea. He's about to go before the king, the king uh, who will stand before in chapter 2, the king who back in Ezra chapter 4 has issued an edict that no city will be built on the hill of Jerusalem. The walls will stay rubble, the gates burnt, nothing is going to be built there. You see, the ongoing ruin of the city on a hill is no accident. It's not an oversight, it's a policy. Nehemiah knows that. And we need the same sort of clarity when it comes to our city. The citizens of Sheffield are opposed to the notion of a city being built on this hill. A city, our city, Sheffield, a city marked with self-rule, with independence, with autonomy. Sheffield is a city full of kings and queens of their own destiny, of self-determined men, women and children. The Gospel says to a city like that, surrender, the king is here. And so don't be surprised that we're everywhere you go in the city proclaiming the true king, the Lord Jesus. Know that somebody already thinks they are king of that territory, whether it be a council, a government, a family or even our own person. Don't be surprised by opposition in schools, in councils, in workplaces, in streets, in our families. If there is to be success in the city of Shepherd, it will take a miracle. Nehemiah knew that. He was asking the king to change his mind and so he calls on his God. He calls on God because he knows his success is completely reliant on God's favour. And once again, don't miss how much more we should be bold in making this plea to our God. For we too know that any success we have in building a city here will come from his favour. But we also know that with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have one who says in Matthew 16, I will build my church, I will build this city and nothing will overcome it. And we are also those who know that with the coming of the Lord Jesus, God has declared to this city and to the entire world the year of his favour, the day of salvation. Let me finish by imploring you to see the desperate need for prayer for this, our city. You know, this Friday, January the 9th, 8pm, half night of prayer, it's just a date in the calendar, isn't it? Just another event, but it's not. It's right at the heart of what we are doing. It's right at the heart of any success of seeing people come to the Lord Jesus this year. And it would be easy for us to sit up on our hill here, high enough perhaps out of the trouble of our city to perhaps not see it, to feel that perhaps the project, this building project, the city on a hill is succeeding here. To miss the tragedy of our city. To think that, uh, that all the work is done, or most of it, We need to come together as we have this morning to have God do what he is doing, to break our hearts again. To hear his promise that he will build his city. To pray and seek ways to serve the city of Sheffield with the wonderful gospel of the name of the Lord Jesus. That project continues this year as it has for some 170 years, as it has since the basement of time and we've only just begun. And so in the coming weeks we're going to see the sort of activity it will take to build an even bigger city on this hill. But today we see where it has to start. It starts with a broken heart and a bended knee begging God's favour and glory to fall on this city. 
So let's pray.